Hey everyone, welcome to Hot SciComm Summer, a special podcast series where I talk to talented science communicators from a bunch of different backgrounds to get their insights on how to convey science beyond academic circles. This episode, though, it's a little different. My guest is not a science communicator, per se, but he is a very experienced communicator who knows a heck of a lot about a particular skill, one that would be very good to develop. Interviewing. Not like for a job, but like interviewing people of note. A lot of science communication efforts, particularly in the age of podcasting, involves interviewing experts, scientists, practitioners, so that the audience is able to learn their expertise through the interviewer. In doing my podcast, Opinion Science, I've interviewed more than 100 people, and the hope is that I'm able to facilitate their science communication efforts. But like, (laughs) I've just been like making it up as I go along. What does it actually mean to be a good interviewer? That's what my guest is uniquely suited to answer. I'm excited to share my conversation with Jesse Thorne. Jesse is the host of the show Bullseye, where he interviews culture makers of every variety. I mean, just this morning, I listened to him interview John Turturro, and that's barely the tip of the iceberg. I've enjoyed his interviews with Alan Alda, Molly Shannon, Christopher Walken, Holly Hunter, and about a million other people. That show started more than 20 years ago as a college radio show and is now distributed by National Public Radio to more than 150 stations across the country. But as if that weren't enough to cement Jesse as an interviewing expert, in 2017 he released a special podcast series where he interviewed a bunch of incredible interviewers. It was called The Turnaround, and honestly, it was an inspiration for how I'm doing this science communication series. It was a limited run of podcast episodes over the summer featuring incredible guests. The Turnaround featured conversations with folks like Terry Gross, Werner Herzog, Larry King, Ira Glass, Audie Cornish. I mean, I really just want to read the whole list of people, but just go check it out. Honestly, I've listened to the whole series twice already. So Jesse Thorne is a guy who knows interviewing, and I was excited to talk to him, like... Like, very excited. I discovered his show back in college, and for the last 15 years or so, I've heard his voice in my head (laughs) through the various podcasts that he's been a part of. So many road trips, long walks, chopping vegetables in my kitchen. He could not have been nicer about setting up a time to chat, and it, it was pretty bizarre to actually meet the guy whose voice I had become so familiar with. Okay, I'll stop fanboying, (laughs) and instead, I'll let you jump right into my interview with the guy who's interviewed interviewers about interviewing. So to to steal one of your own questions, uh, I wanted to ask you what was your first interview I think my first interview, I was trying to figure that out. Um, I think my first interview was, I had just started at the college radio station and there was a guy named Abel Arias. And Abel, I think, was trying to get a hip hop show on the station. And the um, Northern California rap group Black Alicious were in town and we got them to come by the radio station to do an interview. And... uh Abel brought me in as a ringer. Um, I think it was one of those things where he had never done an interview and I had never done an interview. So he figured two was better than one because uh, we could cover for each other. And um, as I remember, it went all right. I mean, they were patient and nice, nice guys. Unfortunately, one of them passed away last year, but um, uh, nice dudes. And at the end, I think we recorded it on a cassette tape, and at the end, I had Gift of Gab and XL, the two guys from Blackalicious, record a shout-out to my mom's junior college class uh, that she played in her class for years thereafter to mixed mixed reactions. <laughs> <laughs> so if we, we fast-forward to, to now... Who who are the people that, that you would if you were to characterize like this is the kind of person that I tend to be interviewing, what is that person? Well, I host an NPR show called Bullseye that is an arts and culture interview show. So um I tend to interview people in the arts and arts and the cultures. And uh generally our tone is lighter um than most stuff on NPR. Um although 
it's not it is a, it is a, a deep and sincere lightness it is not just flippancy it's not just like don't worry you won't have to think about anything kind of lightness it's more just nothing about you know uh child soldiers <laughs> lightness and that's the one rule on the show no no child soldiers yeah <laughs> i mean honestly the one rule on the show is jesse doesn't want to have to watch a horror movie mm. um but uh besides that um it's like people who make things that are fun in some way and that's pretty broadly defined in the context of arts and culture we've had sports figures on um and so on and so forth you know mike the filmmaker mike lee makes a lot of movies that are that have funny things in them but also heavy things you know uh, but I'm not interviewing people about documentaries about uh, war-torn regions or famines. Uh, that's the main thing that we specifically don't do. And there's a lot of comedy and, and music on the show. So one of the things that comes through in, in the turnaround is all the ways in which interviews can be used, right? Like people engage in interviewing for all sorts to all sorts of ends, right? And on Bullseye, the interview is the product, right? The show is the interview, edited, modified in at least some way. But nevertheless, like when you tune in, I'm tuning in to listen to an interview happen. And so what, do, what is it about interviews that you think make them compelling as the product itself? Like wh why is it on its own a viable um, form of media? I mean, the honest truth is that, I mean, this is what a jerk would say, and I'd like to think I'm not a jerk, but uh, it's the conversation is the fundamental building block of human communication, right? Like, conversation is how information is conveyed in every culture, uh, by every type of human being, every t era, every whatever. It's something that automatically makes sense. Um, and, you know, asking questions and getting answers is a, a way to organize that information. There are plenty of ways to organize information, obviously. But to listen in on two people talking um, while one is learning uh, is a way to experience that learning through the, through the interrogator, right? Um, and it's not any more complicated than that. Like, what I like about an interview as a format, like if we're going to say like for radio, um, I like that it shows you who someone is as a human being with relatively little filter. So it is not the story that I am telling. It is them representing themselves. Um, it is not me, like I'm affecting the outcome as the journalist, but I'm not transforming. I'm not the one who's in charge of deciding what the story is. And if you've ever had a story told about you or something that you really care about in, you know, a low to mid-level journalistic context, you may have been surprised at how others represented things you cared about or disappointed. Um, and I think that in an interview context, it is managed but not mediated, and that's nice. And um, I also think that it is it's easy to listen to in a way that, you know, something I really admire, like Radiolab, for example, um, Jada Boomrod or formerly Jada Boomrod's uh, program. Jad just retired from it. But, um, uh, you know, like that show is, a, is, an, is an incredible act of explanation uh, and, and storytelling, but it, it's, it asks a lot of you. You can't tune in and out. Um, and honestly, one of the best things about audio is that you can tune in and out. In fact, some, most people have probably tuned out of what I'm saying right now, uh, by now. Um, but like a, a, a conversation is, it, it's an easy way to engage with a person. You know, it is a pleasant, comfortable, familiar uh, way to engage with someone. And then, you know, the interviewer's job is to give that meaning, you know, give that juice so that it's not just you sitting next to somebody in a cafe. Mm -hmm. So so what is that juice? If we're to d dive deeper, like what, like what is the interviewer's role there? Yeah. So the, I mean, there's a, there's a cure, curatory, curate, let's say curatory 
aspect, which is to say you're choosing the subject, right? Um, and that can include both the you, the journalist, or, or storyteller, whatever, storyteller. <laughs> um, uh, if I say storyteller one more time, please shoot me. <laughs> um, uh, but the person, the person do, conducting the interview, the interrogator, is choosing the subject, both the topic and the person being interviewed, right? Both of those are very important choices. Um, you are saying this is something worth talking about, and you are saying this is the person worth talking to about that. Um, and, you know, in public radio, each of those is generally subject to a big editorial process, you know, like really when when there's a, you know, there's these mid-morning call-in talk shows on a lot of public radio stations around the country that run from, you know, 10 to noon or whatever and 9 to 11. And uh, those shows, like one of my producers was a producer on one of those shows and, you know, his job was they'd have a big meeting, figure out some topics, some evergreen topics, some timely topics. Then each topic would get assigned to somebody and that guy would start, that guy or lady or, or other would start calling around and getting context, understanding who's important. And while they're doing that, figuring out who can talk <laughs> and trying to pick people that, uh, that are clear and interesting, right? So that's the first thing, that curatory um, you are both deciding the, the the subject and the topic. Beyond that, you are building the structure of what you are talking about. So that may be narrative. It may be expository. It may be a combination of the two. Um, it, it may be, you know, uh, it may come in chunks. It may be like, well, let's let's talk about the new thing. Let's go back and talk about the life let's talk about how the life affected the new thing, right? Um, let's talk about, let's take each of these pieces in turn, right? That's a, that's a perfectly reasonable uh, structure. So you are giving it its shape. Hopefully the person is helping you, especially if you've done a good job picking a person, um, you know, in the act of having that conversation, but it's your job to be the boss of it. Um, and then, Beyond that, you are the one, you, the interrogator, are the one who are pulling out the specifics and details and highs and lows um, that give the conversation color and distinctiveness, um, that make it land, so to speak, that move people. Um, you know, people are naturally inclined to relate to the narratives of other people's lives because they relate to them uh, as, as human beings and because our brains are programmed to hear stories. And so the story to, nope, didn't get me. <laughs> um, I didn't say storyteller. Um, uh, so the person who is, the person who is telling that story um, is tapping into something that is like a, you know, brainwaves in our head that are long, you know, path, path, neural pathways that are long established since we were, you know, uh, eight weeks in the womb or whatever. Um, and so like, it, it's your job to find ways to connect, uh, that conversation with those things that really are meaningful to people. Um, and like I said, those are, those are feelings, details, images, stories, anecdotes, illustrations. Um, so you are both managing the, if you think of it as writing an essay, right, you are both managing the structure of that essay, the argument of that essay, and the illustrations of your points. Um, and you may know some of those ahead of time, and you may be recognizing and drawing out those things as you go. Um, generally, it will be a combination of those two things. Uh, and then, you know, all those pieces get put together. And that's, you know, I'm assuming that you're doing it roughly the way I do it, which is, you know, as you said, my show is substantially as live. Like the conversation is presented as though it were live and we cut it mostly for time. We're not rearranging things or recontextualizing things very much. Um, we're mostly just cutting the least interesting parts. Um, and you know, we're talking for an hour and running it at 35 minutes or something. So we're not actually cutting all that much. Um, believe it or not, that counts as not cutting, cutting all that much. Um, but you know, if, 
if you're planning to build something around it, you know what pieces you need to tell that story. You know, just like a reporter knows that she needs a quote about this from the manager, she needs a quote about why the sacrifice bunt from the manager to make the story work. Um, you know, you know the pieces of the story that you need, and your job is to f- both find those and be open to surprises. To the point about what, what you know in advance and what you discover in the moments and the structure that the interview takes, I'm, I'm curious how much of the arc of the call it a story, call it an interview, is something you sort of go like, okay, this is kind of how I envision this hour going versus, I don't know, I've got question one and a blank list after that. Like, what what is the what does the forethought look like for these? For me, on this show... You know, it's different for, I've done some other shows and, you know, I do a show that has no interview at all, but has a guest, a comedy show where it's, you know, there are, we ask the guest questions, but it's not an interview. Um, On Bullseye, generally, I've done a lot of research. I've noted mentally and sometimes on like a list, some like stuff I had questions about things that I wondered about and specific details that I wondered about. The more specific, generally, the better. Not the more concrete, let's say, or the more distinctive, the better. So like if someone always wears red shoes, right? Like that's something that you want to ask them about. Um, And you take a note on that. Um, I kind of make a little list, especially if I'm not feeling confident that there's enough information inside my brain. Uh, I'll make a little list of stuff like that. I'll think a little bit about what the general form will be and like where I'll start uh, in the conversation. And then on bullseye, I mostly just gab with the person. Um, I have those things and I will like glance at that list and like try and remember to work them in and know that I have them there. But I don't write a list of questions. Um and frankly, there are times when I don't have any notes at all. Um, if I was interviewing newsmakers, obviously, I would need notes. Um, I would give the example like um, uh, maybe six months ago, nine months ago, I interviewed this comedy duo from England. And um, one of them had said some had, – had offered support of a campaign against a charity that worked with trans kids. And it wasn't um, it wasn't the straight ahead transphobia like it's gross to be transgender transphobia. It was what they call turfy uh, transphobia, trans exclusionary radical feminist, which is people who believe that uh, only if your uh, gender assigned at birth is female can you be female, and otherwise you're invading female spaces and potentially sexually assaulting people. Uh, it's really gross and awful. That's the thing that J.K. Rowling is. It's much more mainstream in the U.K. And um, so he had sort of done some weird – it was weird and bad, but it wasn't like really straight ahead. And then he had not talked about it afterwards. And I didn't even know about it until it was like 90 minutes before the interview. We probably wouldn't have booked him. Um, we generally try and book people that we feel like we support. Um, you know, we, I, I had people on that surprised me. Louis CK had been on a few times. Um, but generally we try and if there's a question as to whether we think this is a decent person, we generally just don't do it. But in this case, we had the interview booked. We thought, should we cancel this? No, we love this work. And maybe he has a good, you know, a lot of people have grown on those issues. So I did a whole interview about it, (laughs) about his career. (laughs) I'm like, okay, I'm going to get in the can. I'm going to get a conversation about Mitchell and Webb and Peep Show and their various works, right? Great. Did that. I had worked with my producer, who, as I said, is a former news journalist, um, to develop some questions that I wanted to ask specifically around this controversial subject in my opinion, should not be controversial, um, should clearly be seen as immoral, um, what he said. Um, And 
the reason I did that was because there were specifics that I wanted to be able to hold him to, um, that I wasn't confident I could hold in my brain. I wanted to be able to quote back to him as necessary, and I wanted to be very careful about the way that I phrased the questions. Not because I was trying to stick it to him, but because it was particularly important to be clear in that context. And so in that case, I, my producer and I wrote questions. And I didn't read the questions verbatim, but not far from verbatim. I'm still talking to the person like a person, not just reading off a piece of paper, but I needed to have a phrase that I could say if I was uncomfortable that would make sure to get all of the pieces right. And I wanted to be clear about what exactly I wanted to know about this, what, how exactly I wanted to hear from him to clarify this or reinforce it or whatever. And if I were Audie Cornish, my, you know, NPR colleague, who's, a, you know, one of the news hosts, you know, Audie is a full-time career news journalist, and often her interview is with Madeleine Albright. If you're interviewing Madeleine Albright, well, the, she, her, what she said is on the public record. It has meaning. It has consequence in our direct consequence in our lives. And so it's important to have specifics that you can engage with the person with. Now, if I'm interviewing Jimi Hendrix, First of all, congratulations on that booking. <laughs> First of all, Kevin Ferguson is getting a raise. Um, but uh, if I'm interviewing Jimi Hendrix, well, really, I want to know about his feelings, and you know, there's nothing I need to, there's nothing I need to read back to him. And so, as long as I know the things that I want to talk to him about, and have a plan at least in my head, um, then I don't necessarily need to write them out. Now, there's also in betweenies. I thought about whether I needed to write out a question when I interviewed John Waters, who had just done a big, he had published his commencement speech that had a whole part complaining about cancel culture. Um, and I did not write something out, but I did ask him about it. And I did give careful thought to what I wanted to know about that. Because if you come vaguely, a vague answer is possible. If you come specifically, demand specificity. Hmm. I, I remember the the Mitchell and Webb interview too. I, until you mentioned it, I, I had forgotten it. But you know what, Andy? Funny thing. I remember it too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not the happiest day of my life. Yeah. I mean, because again, he because he bailed, right? Is is my memory of it. So what basically what happened is he sort of started answering. He didn't have an answer, frankly. He was feeling scared and persecuted for having been asked about it. I asked very, very gently. Mm -hmm. um, he gave a half answer. We had some follow-up conversation, but no real answers. And then he basically just said, thank you, I've got to go. Um, and afterwards, it was a remote interview. Um, afterwards, they did not send us their side of the interview. Um, their publicist offered to re-record the entire interview. Um, and I said, we said, no, we can't do that. Um, they said, we can add something to it. And I said, if there's more things to say, I'm glad to do that but I'm not going to, we're not going to trash what we have. So if, if he, if he wants to say more things about it that clarify what he said previously, that's fine, but I can't replace what he said previously. Um, they declined to do that. Uh, we did, we had a recording of the web conference, which, you know, like you and I are talking to each other on zoom. We were talking on zoom and we had a recording of that, that, Fidelity is not as good as a local recording, which is why I'm recording locally here and you're recording locally there. Um, but it was good enough to run on the air. Um, I think it was, you know, obviously, as a journalist, I can't say with certainty that it was a ploy, but it certainly appeared to be a very transparent ploy to get us to spike the interview. Um, 
And they went through a few different versions of that. And one nice thing about <laughs> one nice thing about being at NPR is NPR's ethics handbook is on the internet. So um you know, I don't actually work for NPR, but I'm partnered with NPR and I their ethics rules apply to me. I represent NPR and so we can just say um that doesn't comply with NPR's ethics guidelines. Um so we're not able to do that for you. And I actually watched the other day my friend W. Kamau Bell made a documentary about Bill Cosby. Um, and there's a long sequence in the film with some conversations where journalists are interviewing Cosby after, you know, the news was out about him being an alleged and convicted rapist. Um, it, the news was out, but then Hannibal Burris did this comedy bit about it that really got it out there. And then Cosby and his wife were doing interviews for an art exhibition at the Smithsonian for which they had lent the art. And um, Neil Conan, I think it was, from NPR, was out there. Maybe, no, Scott Simon. I think it was Scott Simon uh, was out there, did the interview, did an interview there. And, and they had video of another guy doing an interview there and Cosby basically shutting them down. And the guy actually said what we say in that situation. And when I say we say it, it's come up like three times in 20 years. Um, but what we say in, in that situation, which is uh, when someone says, can you spike this? You say, I cannot tell you that I will spike that. No. I'm glad to take your feelings into consideration. Um, I'm going to talk to the editorial team. You just don't. Because, you know, in the case of a show like ours, generally speaking, I will spike it uh, broadly. You know, if someone talks about their their mom's goiters and then afterwards they email us and say, hey, I talked about my mom's goiters and I feel really bad about it. Do you think you could not run the, the goiters part? Um, I will reserve the right to say no to them, but I will probably say yes. You know, like I'm not a monster. Mm -hmm. uh, like I don't I'm not there to to, you know, figure out how to make them look bad. But if it's newsworthy. Of course I won't spike it, right? Like, no way in a million billion years would I. <laughs> so, um, uh, so yeah, so that's, you get into this place where you, we've gone, a, we've gone far afield from whether you write down your questions, <laughs> but, um, uh, but the answer is on the, on the, on the ethics front, like, it's nice to have a document you can point to, and it's nice to say that, um, unfortunately I'm not allowed to, uh, make editorial assurances, um, once your voice is on tape, it, you know, you've agreed to be there. You can say what you want or not say, but, um, uh, we will use it as best fits our mission. If I am to bring it back to the, so the, the mechanics part too, no, like, let's go further. <laughs> well, that sort of the, the gist kind of, what, the, if, I, what if that whole thing happened, but on a boat, what would happen then? Yeah. That's national waters. Yeah. Th that's how you write a question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, but sort of the 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 basic line that I'm getting is when it's sort of chit chat, there's not a lot of preparation in terms of like pre-written. This is what I'm going to ask you. But in instances where there's a very specific thing that you want this person to speak to, then a pre-written thoughtful question is the way to do it. Um, yeah. Or to write the. So uh, let me clarify what you said. A lot of preparation goes into every piece of it. Um, so I am monumentally prepared. My life is dedicated to being prepared for these conversations. Um, I'm very familiar with the people's work. I've thought a lot about what I want to talk to them about. I have a plan going in. Um, I just hold it all very lightly. I find that while there are people who can perform written questions, in such a way that they can trick the person they're talking to into thinking they're actually talking to them like a human being. I am not one of those people. Maybe I could become one if I worked hard. I went to acting school, but like, I don't choose to be, do that. I don't choose to present written questions as though they are not written questions. So you have to have a plan. That plan either has to be on a piece of paper or in your head. 
you have to hold it lightly and be willing to be flexible, but you have to know what you need and what you want. Now, as far as the questions, the actual questions, you can do a variety of things. I think the most useful to most people who have at least some experience will be to write cues or key points that you can glance at and then make into a sentence that will feel and feel like and actually be a human talking words. Um, if there are specifics that need to be included, if there are concrete details that you need to be able to offer or respond with, you have to have those available to you, whether they're perfectly in your brain because you're able to do that with your brain uh, or on a piece of paper in front of you. And if the stakes are very high, even just in terms of the way the question is framed, then it may be worth actually writing out the question. The other situation where I would say it might be worth writing out the question is if you have truly never done it before and you're freaked out. Um, but you should know, even in doing that, that your goal should be to be able to have a human conversation with someone and particularly to be flexible in the context of answers. So the two biggest problems that I see with or hear with people who write questions are one which is relatively small. The thing that I said, which is it sounds stiff. It sounds phony. There is one other thing, which is it makes everything stiff. It makes it so that when something interesting happens, you can't get more of that because you're on to the next thing on the list. When something unclear happens, you can't make it clearer because you're on to the next thing on the list. When something takes a turn, you can't turn with it because you're on to the next thing on the list. So if you are beholden to your list, you are unable to respond to what is actually happening in real time. And what is actually happening in real time is the thing that is going to go out on the air. That's the thing that is going to be the interesting stuff, right? Like. When you hear someone say, like, I just interviewed Big Boy from Outcast the other day. And before we went on the air, I told him that the moment in the history of my show that more people talk to me about is not like, you know, the late Michael K. Williams was on my show and I played the song, this dance record that he was his first professional acting gig. Was, I mean, his pr first professional dancing gig was in the video for this record. And he broke down into tears. Completely unexpected for me, very powerful moment. That is not what people talk to me about. What people talk to me about is Big Boy from Outcast came on the show. And Big Boy has a lot invested, for, for obvious reasons, I think, in clarifying that when they were teenagers, him and Andre, Big Boy was a really good student and Andre was a bad student. And Big Boy was into Kate Bush and Andre was just into regular rap records. Because like... Big Boy's like, look, I am also the interesting one, <laughs> right? Like, we are both an outcast. We're both genius. They are both geniuses. You know, they're like, that's what's special about Outcast is that they're both geniuses. Somehow, two of the 25 greatest rappers of all time are in the same rap group. Hmm. Um, but like, they're both geniuses. And, and Big Boy just wants to be clear that like, he's not just, he wasn't just like selling drugs and whatever, like, would be easy to assume because he wears a jersey well. Uh, Andre wears a platinum blonde bob wig and a catcher uniform. Um, and uh, there's this moment in that interview where he was talking about he was talking about how he used to make his own clothes. Andre dressed preppy. You know, this is the early 90s. So Andre was, you know, on that like hip hop prep thing. And um, and Big Boy used to make his own clothes. And he said, you know, we used to, we used to get like white, white jumpsuits and then dye them. And I was like, with writ, with like writ dye? And big boy goes, what you know about that writ dye? <laughs> and like more people have talked to me about what you know about that writ dye than any <laughs> other piece of my work that I've ever done. The time I 
talk through my dog dying or any of the many essays I wrote about art that moved me. And all it really is is me calling out a detail because I was there and mm. paying attention. You know what I mean? Like being a person that was talking to a person. Mm. And it's those kinds of things that you can do in conversation when you're not just looking at the next question. Mm. Now, if you have to have questions there because otherwise you're freaked out, just do it. But um, know that your goal is to be able to be present in the conversation while also giving it form. Yeah, and and part of that ties to a theme that I thought was really interesting in the conversations that you've had with interviewers, which is to what extent is the interviewer a character in this as well? Right? Like how much of this is also you being there, right? Like that's that example that you just gave is like you being like it's like that it, it's two people, right? It's not like an interviewer right. and a subject, but it's two people. And so, right. you know, I, I wonder about this in science communication, right? I think there's a lot of uh you know, stick to the facts. This isn't about me. <laughs> this is about the, the the truth of the universe. But, you know, one of the things that I think helps <laughs> give a sense of like how your show's been successful is it's like you, like people have a relationship with you, the host of this show, and know who you are because you're sort of willing to bring that part of yourself to these conversations. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you approach that decision or how you think about how someone ought to approach that decision to bring themselves into the conversation? Well, Bullseye has all, has never aspired to be a news show, not just in terms of breaking new information, but in terms of, you know, the way that the mandate of NPR broadly, and I didn't start with, you know, this started as my college radio show, but the, the mandate of NPR broadly or Newsweek or I guess the mandate of Newsweek is to like uh, get people to write clickbait articles for free now or whatever. But um, Time Magazine, whatever the whatever you're the New York Times, uh, the mandate of these things is to make a sample, a representation of the world sorted by what's consequential with some some measure of what's interesting. All the news that's fit to print, right? That's what they do on Morning Edition or All Things Considered. So even if they're doing a story about, you know, rap ciphers on the subway in Brooklyn, that story, as specific as it is, is meant to be a representation of, well, this is the kind of stuff that's going on in the world that matters, right? That is one way of making media. And that could be true in a specific context as well. It could be this is the kind of stuff that matters in the world of hamsters. Um, you know, it doesn't have to be all of the world, as in the New York Times. But it is a breadth, right? It is, we have sorted things out for you. That has never been what Bullseye is. Um, you know, we're closer to that than many podcasts. <laughs> but... Um, you know, I started I started doing the show before podcasts existed and started podcasting basically when podcasts had got invented. So it, that was not always true forever. Like we sort of blundered our way through this. Always, like the reason the show is called Bullseye with Jesse Thorne, which didn't used to have my name in it, is because the people at NPR and some other people I respected convinced me they're like, you have to make it clear this is your show because that's what the premise of the show is. <laughs> Like the premise of the show is I and my people who represent me, my producers, right? But me, ultimately, I decide what I think is good and share it with you. I think these people's work is interesting and I'm sharing, I'm recommending it to you. And in that context, is my show Joe Rogan where... I'm just sort of wandering around through stuff and I'm like, well, I don't know. I'm just a whatever, you know? Uh, no, it's not that – like that Joe Rogan show is about Joe Rogan, right? Because it's somebody came to visit Joe Rogan. He's like, well, I guess uh, you guys know me. So uh, you and me are on the same team and we'll find out what this person has to say. I, who knows, right? Um, or, you know, Chris Hardwick's old show was that but he's a super fan, right? Like he's like he's a nerd avatar. I'm sorry that I'm only using canceled examples here, but yeah. <laughs> uh, it's just coincidental. Um, uh, but like on my show, it is from my perspective. It is my recommendation, and I am the thing that is on the show every week. 
you hear my voice, and hopefully you get to know me by listening to the show. There's various levels of inference that might be required in that. I feel like I know Terry Gross, even though she never says anything about it herself. But that's because I have listened so hard, so long to Terry Gross. I don't feel like I know Audie Cornish when she's on Morning Edition. You know, and Audie on the turnaround argued very vociferously for a news perspective, which is to say it's not about me, which is correct for what she does. Um, with science... Well, gosh, that is a, a sticky wicket, as they say, right? Like, the question is, um, to what extent are you representing the truth with a capital T? And to what extent are you even aspiring to represent the truth or believe that you can represent the truth? Because, you know, obviously one of the, I don't have to explain to your listeners, but like one of the central questions in science communication is how do you represent the fact that we do not know the truth and that science is the act of looking for the truth, not the act of knowing the truth, right? Um, and there are situations in which a human perspective can be valuable for that. I think audio is a particularly good way to connect with people. It's probably the best of the media that we have to feel like you know someone and have a personal relationship with someone. Um, it's just has that, it just is like that. Um, but I don't think that there's anything wrong with an infographic either, which is the opposite. <laughs> it's really about what your, it's really about what your goals are, right? Like Alan Alda can teach us about science because we love Alan Alda. Right? Like that's a central part of why we want to learn about science from Alan Alda. And Alan Alda is not a scientist. Alan Alda is just a guy that loves it and a bright guy who is, you know, one of America's 100 most lovable people. Um, and that carries us through that process, right? Um, some people, the way we know them might be about their expertise, their, their, their ability to find the truth. And so it might be important to know them, uh, as a person in order to communicate that message. Like, you know, um, God, I, I keep using canceled examples here, but Neil deGrasse Tyson, um, is an example of a, you know, somebody who the reason we need to know him a little bit when he's making something like that is because we need to understand the context of who he is and what he knows and mm -hmm. what his actual expertise is and that he is not an ignoramus uh, wandering blindly. He is a relatively informed person um, who has certain expertises and knowing him as a person in his personal perspective helps clarify that. Um, he came on my show and was mean to me and I don't like it. Um, he also allegedly has been a creep to people, which I also don't like to be clear. I'm not equating those two things. Um, and, uh, I'm really, I just really opened up your entire message board is blowing up. Right. With the, the <laughs> oh no. Grass Tyson thread right now. Um, the Hardwick thing wasn't enough. Um, uh, and so like, there, the, the moral of the story is there are different amounts of that and different kinds of that for different purposes. Um, so you really have to think about what is my purpose here um, and know that in a lot of media, having a host is helpful. Having a person that you can know some is useful to connect people to the material and give people context. You know, what is in our time without Melvin Bragg? Right? It's the BBC talk show, long-running mm -hmm. BBC Big Brains talk show, right? Like, otherwise, it's just a bunch of old English guys <laughs> talking about ancient Rome or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, like, the fact that you know this guy who's in the middle of it asking the questions connects you to the old English guy's Hmm. Talk, they're a little better about not just having old English guys, but <laughs> not that much better <laughs> these days. Yeah, I was listening recently to the um, interview you did with uh, Reggie Osei on the mm -hmm. turnaround, 
which is what I love about it is I probably would never have otherwise been in a position to get this person's perspective on the world. And yet there it was. But you said something in that conversation that really resonated with me, which is that, you know, you were talking about having hip hop artists on bullseye and, and balancing what, you know, your typical NPR audience is, and also wanting to do right by the hip hop community and kind of almost communicate that, you know, you, this is something that that is a passion for you, right? So it's a it's a world that matters to you, and sort of juggling this like, how do I represent this world in a way that gets through to people who have no baseline, but is also respectful to a community who, you know, understands the long history there. And it reminds me of, of science communication too, where I go, you know, you're addressing a population that may have no foundation for thinking about this question. But also, I have plenty of colleagues <laughs> who are going to listen and be like, well, why is Andy acting like he doesn't know about this thing that he's <laughs> talking about? Um, and so when you're in that position, you know, part of the question is, who is the audience that you have in mind when you're doing this? Um, and also, like, to go back to something you said earlier on, which is the interviewer's job or, or people learn through the interviewer, right? Like, you're sort of listening to a conversation and you're watching someone learn something. And so if it's something you already have some familiarity with, how do you tell the line between playing the role of someone who's learning, but also, um, you know, respecting the the topic? Yeah. Well, first of all, rest in peace to Reggie, uh, Combat Jack, wonderful man, pioneering podcaster. Uh, I definitely, people should go listen to that episode of The Turnaround because he's was a very insightful guy, pa passed away a few years ago. Um, but uh, that aside... Um, yeah, I mean, the first thing is you got to know what your audience is. You got to know who you're making this for. Um, you know, that's true of basically all media. Um, but it's particularly true, um, of something that is as specific and particular as science media, right? Like, uh, it, it it's true if you're making a story about cats, you got to know whether you're making it for cat owners or anyone who might see it, have seen a cat or know what a cat is, right? But it's particularly true if you're doing something as, as specific as science, as science media. Um, so you just have to decide that. You have to know that. You know, same as if you're making a toothbrush. You know what I mean? You gotta know who you're gonna try and sell this toothbrush to. Um, then you have to understand that it's your job to serve the audience. And often, not always, but often you are an avatar for that audience. You know, often you are asking on their behalf. Um, but you are doing so, even to the extent you are, you are doing so in a way that is informed by you knowing more than them. And that is a shaping your avatarness to be extra useful to them. Hmm. Now, Let's say you're talking about something for a general audience that doesn't know jack all about it. Um, and let's say you're talking about something pretty specific and you know a lot about it. Definitely, you need to be asking the ignoramus questions that the audience needs to know. And often those are the best questions. Larry King on the turnaround told me that one of his proudest moments was asking an airplane pilot when he took off, if he knew he was going to land. And I was like, yeah, that's a spectacular question. <laughs> that's why you're Larry King and I'm not. That is a, a stunningly good question, right? And it's the, so you have to be comfortable with the fact that you are not the one who needs to look smart. That's thing number one. But thing number two is when you are bringing someone's heart to people for whom it is not their heart. When you are bringing someone's hard work to people for whom it is 10 minutes in an afternoon driving home, you do have, I think, an ethical responsibility, a moral responsibility to represent them, not necessarily in the way that they would like to be represented because they might be wrong about how they'd like to be represented, but to represent them in a way that is full and respectful and honorable and 
not dismissive or flippant or wrong. Like the reason people don't trust the media is because we have all read a newspaper article about something where we knew more about it than the person who wrote the article, and we can see what that person got wrong. There was an article about me in the New York Times, for which I'm very, very grateful. I want to be clear, and it was a wonderful article. And it listed some inter people I had interviewed on the show, and I had not. I was like, I wish I had interviewed Jay-Z, but I have not. And that's in the New York Times with fact checkers and stuff, right? That's the I like I'm not saying that to put down the New York Times. I'm just saying that happens because it's hard to get everything perfectly right. That's why it's the first draft of history. Um and so if you have had that experience, which most people have, or at least have heard about from someone else, whether you're a greengrocer or whatever, you know that the person who is doing that communicating, you are doing it partly on behalf of someone who has dedicated their life to this, and you have to be respectful uh, and uh, and really actually put in your heart to representing them fairly and correctly. So that part is the part that's – that burden is on you. You have to figure out what they are actually trying to say and try and represent that. Like you as a journalist or equivalent, you know, I'm also a pseudo journalist. So <laughs> like when I'm using journalists very broadly here, um, like you do have that responsibility to this subject um, because they are not a professional storyteller. You can chew me now. Yeah, right. <laughs> I I almost let it slide, even though you called yourself out on it. <laughs> um, uh, by way of wrapping up, uh, I find the most awkward part of an interview ending it. Um, mm -hmm. And so I wondered if you could give me any tricks for how to conclude an interview. Yeah, I'm always looking to conclude with reflection. Hmm. So there's this thing. It's I don't mean to ruin This American Life and every This American Life derivative program in the history of the world. Um, which is like half of podcasting. Um, but every This American Life is anecdote, anecdote, reflection throughout. And then on a large scale, it's anecdote reflection. <laughs> um, like that is the rhythm of every piece. And there's a reason for that. It's because the goal is to find the facts and then understand why it matters. And for people, why it matters is often substantially about feelings. If it's personal, it's going to be in that person's feelings. And those feelings are going to be universally relatable because we all have feelings. Um, the specifics are a way to access the understanding. And so when I am trying to end an interview... I'm always thinking about synthesis, analysis, reflection, and feelings. And so the question is, how did you change? What did you learn? What does this mean? What has resolved? What's an open question? Um, and that takes the list of things and makes it meaningful. Nice. And then you just say goodbye. And I just, I usually thank the people for their work. I've found myself slipping into always saying to people, uh, thank you for taking the time to be here, which I do mean very sincerely, but I worry that I say that phrase too much and it's going to sound like pablum because I say it too often and I have to think of other ways to say that same sincere sentiment so it doesn't sound insincere. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really mean it. Every time I'm like done talk, like I talked to uh, Alana Haim uh, from the rock band Haim and the most recent, she stars in the most recent P.T. Anderson movie, Licorice Pizza. And she's just such a joy, like just what a delightful person. And, you know, Haim is not my kind of music. Uh, they're very good at what they do, but it's not what I would listen to in the car. Um, and I had, she, this was her first big acting part, so it was the first time I'd seen her acting. Um, she was really great in the movie. 
But I was like, what an amazing person. And I just thought, I know she's she's here because she's selling something. You know what I mean? Like she wants people to go see this movie so she can have an entertainment career. It's not like she's not getting anything out of this. But like I'm not paying her to be here. She could be going – she could be playing guitar. <laughs> she could be practicing her congas, you know. And she came and talked to me. So like I do often – I'm sitting there and it, I like I said, I only have people that I like and respect on the show as a rule. Um, like I'm just sitting there and I'm like, man, I just talked for an hour to Pedro Almodovar, you know. Like he doesn't even – he doesn't even do interviews. He doesn't like talking in English. His <laughs> English is very good. He had a translator there and I was like, we do not need this translator. Your <laughs> English is very good. <laughs> um, but like he talked to me about, he talked about being disabled by migraines, you know, which is something that he basically doesn't talk about publicly. That was, you know, essentially what he made this movie with Antonio Banderas where he's, uh, addicted to narcotics and like the reason that he knew about this was because of his his migraines and um like when someone's done and they like really tell you what they feel and like what it means you're just like man i can't believe you took an hour like thank you <laughs> you know <laughs> like whoa <laughs> i'm just some dude <laughs> Like, I don't feel like I have nothing to offer, but I do I do feel grateful that anyone takes the time to stop and chat. Well, you are describing exactly the way that I feel right now. And so, Jesse, thanks so much for taking the time to be here. No problem. I served it down the middle of the play. You hit a home run just now. <laughs> that whole thing was just a setup for you to say that to me, just so you know. Yep. I don't believe any of this stuff that I just said. <laughs> I just wanted you to say it back, back to me. It's all the mechanics of a story. I'm the Almodovar <laughs> of, of the least successful show in all of NPR. <laughs> no, I, I, I do genuinely appreciate it, and it has been a real treat. H having heard your voice so many times, uh, you know, I, I, like I told you, I, I kind of came across The Sound of Young America in college just because I wanted to hear comedians give interviews at a time yeah. when that wasn't actually what most yeah, when that wasn't things every were. Podcast. Yeah, right. uh, and I found your show and, and found it so delightful and and all, you know, the, all the, the tentacles out from that that have sort of spread into this kind of amazing uh, landscape that you've kind of pioneered has been great. And, and so to get to talk to you about this stuff has been a real treat. So I'll say it once again. Thank you, Jesse, for taking the time to be here. Of course. I'm going <laughs> to go get my chicken now. Okay. All right. I hope you enjoy. <laughs> Giant thank you to Jesse Thorne for taking the time to chat. Honestly, it was a real treat to get to talk to him. Check out the show notes for this episode at opinionsciencepodcast.com, where you'll find links to all sorts of stuff that Jesse has done, including his podcasts, Bullseye and The Turnaround, and two other shows that I've enjoyed for a really long time, Jordan Jesse Go and Judge John Hodgman. This series on science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts, your Apples, your Googles, your Spotify's, and you can help spread the word about the podcast and this science communication series in particular by sharing it on social media, passing it along to scientists, science writers, journalists, your pets, and leaving kind reviews of the podcast online. Okie doke. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week to continue with today's theme. Whereas Jesse primarily interviews actors, comedians, musicians, I also wanted to talk to folks who specifically interview social scientists. So I called up my friends Tim Houlihan and Kurt Nelson, who host the podcast Behavioral Grooves. They'll share their experience interviewing scientists and also give their tips for scientists preparing to be interviewed about their work answer the question that's being asked in the simplest form possible and allow the interviewer to ask more questions. It's easy for a researcher who has written the paper, it's been peer reviewed, gotten three rounds of comments and corrections, finally gets published, then they're defending it at a conference or six conferences and they're tired of the same damn questions. So they, they're basically bringing forward 
all of the arguments right up front. So it's it's not a 45 minute monologue. It's harder when you've got all this information bottled up inside of you to actually hold back and just, just drip it out. But I think that it makes for more interesting listening too.